Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and, and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered them, answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Welcome to Mercy View. Glad you're with us on this holiday weekend. Pray that the Lord is working and that you're seeing how he's working in your life. Today is a surreal day for me. Even standing right here, right now, in front of you all, I struggle to find a kind of put words to the range of emotions that I feel. Today, as many of you know, is my last sermon, my last time preaching here at Mercy View as, as one of your pastors, and I'm incredibly grateful for our time together. I was looking back this week um, and I, on the website, and I was able to count up the amount of times that I've stood here um, preaching in this church, and it was, it was a, a, a number that I was, it was more than I thought it was going to be, um, but it, today is my 71st sermon at Mercy View. A long time, and you could a uh, lot of lot of sermons. Some of them okay, some of them pretty bad. Um, you could go back and listen to most of them. I would not encourage you to listen from like before 2015. You know, if we you think about that, but you're more than welcome to. Obviously, one of the things that I've been deeply ben um, I've deeply benefited from something that I want to share with you all today. It's something that as we move forward as a church and as you all move forward without me, one of the things that's going to come, become really relevant for you. In 2012, February, was when I preached the first sermon here at Mercy View. And again, it's, it's on the website. You could go listen to it. It's not very good. It's not very good. Ten years ago, it's before Kate and I were married. It's before we knew each other. Life was really, really different. So I sit here today, stand here today, you know, in whatever it is, May of 2022, 10 years later, married, three kids, been through a lot of things ministry-wise here at Mercy View. I've benefited from a church and a leader, Pastor Brad and now Pastor John, who have a desire to help people grow, and specifically grow in ministry. 
You see, a lot of places don't give 23-year-olds, 24-year-olds a shot to preach. It doesn't happen everywhere. But it happened here, and it continues to happen here. And I've benefited from that tremendously. And more than just me, the kingdom has benefited from that tremendously. So now as, as I go, and we go to Albuquerque to help plant Albuquerque Church, one of the things that's going to happen in this space is there's going to be people who fill this void. Young people, younger than me, who aspire to do ministry, who aspire to preach God's word, and who are going to have opportunity to do that. So one of the things that you have to know is that as you sit there and perhaps listen to a few bad sermons, you have to understand, we have to understand together that there's a greater kingdom work happening. We are all a part. This church is a part of the kingdom of God that is growing and taking ground and pushing back darkness. That's a part of your story. It's a part of our story together. And as we go on to Albuquerque to further that in a different place, you all remain here and continue that story. And it's a beautiful story. It's a story of kingdom-mindedness. It's a story where um, what Jesus does is actually call us to something greater than you ever might think. Greater than just sort of eking out this kind of meager existence as, as Americans. No, no, it's way more than that. It's becoming a part of this larger story where God is changing the world. You're a part of that story. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot as our family takes steps out in faith is the, the importance of faith and the kingdom. And the kingdom. If you were to read the gospel accounts like Matthew, one of the things that you would see if you read it all the way through you would notice that the kingdom of God breaks through in surprising places among surprising people. Like the people who were supposed to understand the kingdom missed it. You know, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they missed it. But then the people who maybe weren't supposed to understand, sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, those down in the gutter, they saw it. What's the difference? How did some see it and some miss it? What's going on there? Well, I want to suggest to you one of the factors that distinguishes these two groups of people as the kingdom breaks through in the gospel accounts is faith. In order to see the kingdom breaking through, you need faith. Why? Because it breaks through in surprising places among surprising people. And we think about that in our lives, you think about that in your life, to live in a kingdom-shaped way, to, to follow Jesus in this all-of-life discipleship sort of way, faith is required. It's just required. You can't do it without faith. And, and, but let me be super clear, faith not in this sort of lip service idea that, yeah, I, I have faith in God, I, tr I trust him. But then I, I really just sort of order my life, live my life like I can manage. And then when I feel like I can't manage, then I try. No, it's not that. It's not that. Rather, it's not knowing what's around the corner, but trusting that he's there. It's orienting your life around the kingdom, around the church, around the things of God. 
It's leaving a privatized, compartmentalized faith that fits within the framework of your life in a nice little comfortable way. That's not it. It's actually going out onto the edge. Onto the edges of faith. So pointedly, as we look at our text in Matthew here together, are you receptive enough to follow Jesus out on the edge? Are you? Like, really? Because that's what he's calling you to. He's calling you out on to the edge of faith, where maybe circumstances and situations don't make a lot of sense. Maybe they can't make sense. Maybe there's something else going on. Faith is inherently mysterious, friends. Faith in God is inherently mysterious in the sense that you have to trust him when you can't see the future. Do you trust him to step out onto the edges? Before we jump into our text in Matthew 14, I want to highlight three points in the sermon for us today. First, Jesus moves toward you in your need. Jesus moves toward you in your need. Second, Jesus gives you courage. Jesus gives you courage. And then finally, Jesus calls you out of the boat. He calls you out of the boat. But before we do that, let me pray. Our Father, thank you for your love for sinners like us. Thank you that you are with us, God. That you have committed to be with us. That you have demonstrated a love to us that is deeply bound with a commitment to us. Thank you that you do not go back on your word. Thank you that you are a God who keeps your promises. Thank you that you are not safe, but you are good. You are the king. Father, open our eyes that we would see wonders in your word. Open our hearts that our faith in you grow. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Jesus moves toward you in your need. Let's pick it up at verse 23 in Matthew 14. When evening came, he was there alone. But by then the boat was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against him, against them in the boat. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. This section in Matthew 14 on Jesus walking on the water is uh, connected to the section before it, which is Jesus feeding the 5,000. We're meant to see them together as a larger unit. Jesus is demonstrating his, his, his reign and his rule, his mastery over the created order in both accounts. After he feeds the 5,000, he sends the disciples away off in the boat, and he goes up in the mountains to pray. And you'll notice that he, he looks down and he sees them, and he'll, you'll, you'll notice that they're not having a good time. They come, the, the text goes out of its way to share with us that whatever's going on in the sea, it's, it's not good. Look back at verse 24. The boat, by that time, a long way from land, beaten by the waves, and the wind was against them. Now, there are a couple well-known stories in the Gospels where the disciples are in a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and things go wrong. This is one of those. There's another one we'll talk about in a minute. Now, the Sea of Galilee in particular was known for having unpredictable weather. The geography, where it sat in relation to some mountains and blah, blah, blah. That storms came up quite a lot. But 
The thing about it, one of the interesting things, is that these guys in this boat, they knew that. Many of them would have been professional fishermen fishing that, that, that lake, that sea, like their whole life. They would have known that. Something else is going on in the, in the, in the text. Something else is happening that, that we need to see. From the beginning of the scripture all the way to the end, there's a sense where the sea, the ocean, the sea, the S-E-A, is a symbol for chaos. It's a symbol for, for the effects of sin. It's uncontrollable, it's wild, it's chaotic. Now we see that in a couple of places. You see it in, in the prophets quite a bit. You see it um, here in, in this text. You see it earlier in Matthew 8 where Jesus actually calms the sea by speaking to it. And then at the end in, in Revelation 21... When, when John is seeing this vision of the new heaven and the earth, one of the things that he, he records for us is that there was no sea. What's he talking about? Is God like anti-beach? No, 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 no oceans in the new heaven and the new earth? Or is there something else going on? Does it mean um, that when Jesus comes back, after he comes back, sin, its effects chaos, danger, are no more. I would suggest to you that that's the image in Revelation 21, that after Jesus comes back the second time, he reigns and rules over the sea, over the chaos, over sin, over death, over everything, and there is no more sea in that sense. Brokenness is gone. Jesus will wipe away all the tears from all the eyes. We look forward to that day. It's our great eschatological hope. But like in Matthew 14, today, that is, not, that is not our current situation. You know that the sea is very real. Sin, death, chaos, danger, suffering, and pain. You see, as people who live in the sea, us, me and you, we feel the effects of sin and death around us all the time. And like in Matthew 14, when we're uh, blown by the wind and battered by the waves, that results in a type of weariness, exhaustion. Like, do you ever wake up from sleeping the, like the whole night and you're already tired? What is that about? There's all kinds of things happening. But one of them is, is that the weariness associated with living in the sea is real. It's real. And it can overtake us at times, but what we have to see, and there's a sense in which, uh, I'm, I'm going to get ahead of myself. I don't want to do that yet. Hold on. <laughs> we'll make it there. In the midst of the sea, what we need to see in Matthew 14, as they're battered by the winds and the waves, Jesus sees them. He sees them from on top of the mountain, and he doesn't stay up there. He moves down toward them. He moves toward them. In, a, in, in the same way, Jesus sees you. He sees your sin. He sees the ways you struggle. He sees that you are battered by the wind and the waves, and he moves toward you. In fact, in Psalm 34, 18, the psalmist, says, the psalmist says that God is near the brokenhearted 
and saves the crushed in spirit. What is he talking about? What does that actually mean? I want to suggest to you that it is an impulse in God. It's part of who he is that we see demonstrated in the person of Jesus to see his people struggle and suffer and move toward them. Not stay put, not move away from them, move toward them. It's what he's like. And we see that ultimately in the person and work of Jesus when he comes down from the culture of heaven, enters the culture of earth, becomes a man only to die to take your place. What is that about if not God seeing you from afar, seeing your struggle, and moving toward you with the remedy? That's what God is like. I would suggest to you that's what the whole story of the Bible is about. God redeeming his people, seeing them from afar, and moving toward them. That's what he's like. One of the things that we've got to be aware of is that sometimes, because of sin, because of suffering, we actually miss the ways that God moves towards us. We miss the ways that he makes himself known to us. This happens quite a bit. It happens because our circumstances can get in the way and they can be challenging and they can almost act like an eclipse and they can all, all I see is what's in front of me and I can't see around, I can't see anything else. This happens quite a bit and it can happen. It can make you, it can make you move away from the Lord. It can make you be upset with him, mad at him, frustrated at him. But what we've got to see is that he moves toward you, not away from you, even when you're mad at him. Even when you're frustrated, he's not frustrated with you. He moves toward you. Here in this text, we see that in Matthew 14, but we also see it in the larger story that God in Christ has come to save you, to rescue you, not from the wind and the waves, but from sin and death. But you will notice... I've already mentioned it. You, you will notice that here in Matthew 14, unlike in Matthew 8 from before, Jesus did not calm the storm. He didn't calm the storm. He moved toward them in their trial. But he didn't calm the storm. This leads me to the second point that I want you to see here from the text this evening. Jesus gives us courage. Jesus gives us courage. If you have your Bible, we'll pick it up at verse 25. He says this. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. The fourth watch of the night is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. You can imagine how beat the disciples are after wrestling with the boat, being taken about by the wind and the waves all night. Jesus, coming down the mountain, sees them, moves toward them, walks on the water toward them. Now, you might think that it would have been nicer for the disciples if Jesus had just calmed the storm like he did back in Matthew 8. Like he did back in Matthew 8. Now, you see, one of our temptations is when Jesus comes near to us, when he comes near to us in our trial, we want him to change our circumstances, which is not necessarily a bad thing. 
We want him to stop the storm, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it can act like an eclipse that causes us to miss what he's actually doing. Some rightly point out that he could have stopped the storm here in Matthew 14, and like he, he already showed that he could in Matthew 8. But we have to grapple with, why didn't he? Why didn't he stop the storm in Matthew 14 when he did in Matthew 8? And that why question sends us down a path that people have been talking about and asking for a long time. Sends us toward, toward questions about the problem of pain and the problem of suffering. Theodicy. Why does a good God allow bad things to happen? People have been asking that question for a long, long time. It's a real question, and the Scripture speaks to it all over the place. So one of these biblical overarching themes or principles that we have to see in order to actually answer that question is that God does not always insulate his people from suffering. He doesn't. Now you can see examples of that all over the scripture. From the exodus to the exile, all the way up to uh, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. In fact, I would suggest to you that you, you, can't, you can't read the Bible and come away from it thinking, God is going to shield me totally from suffering or pain. The fact is that we see examples of suffering and pain all over the place. And one of the things that I would suggest to you he's doing in Matthew 14 He's lifting our eyes away from the circumstances. He's lifting their eyes away from the storm and putting them on him. On him. Jesus gives us courage. Look back what he says in verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And you can imagine them in the boat saying something like, yeah, but the storm is raging. Yeah, but we've been doing this all night. We're taking on water. What are you talking about? Don't be afraid. Why don't you just stop it like you did before? What does Jesus say? Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. What's he doing? He's giving them courage in the midst of the circumstance, in the midst of the storm, in the midst of their confusion, frustration, exhaustion. He gives courage. He does the same for you. He does the same for me. Let's think practically about that together because uh, he is with us, but he's not walking on the sea toward us. So how can we see him? How can you see him in your life in the midst of whatever's going on? Frustration, confusion, suffering, challenges, pain. How can you see him? Him drawing near. How can you actually find courage in him? Where does that actually happen? A couple of ideas here. Super practical things. Where we can see the Lord in the midst of challenges. First, in the church. In the church, God routinely, routinely works in his people through his people. 
It's one of the things that he does. It's one of the ways that he has prescribed that he would work. He works in his people, through his people. That I can't even tell you. I've been at Mercy View now for almost 10 years. I cannot even tell you how many times God has worked in somebody's life, not through like a microwave lightning bolt, but through another person. Like when, like when we showed up to, to, the, to the, the gospel community or missional community or small group, whatever, or here or somewhere else, and, and God spoke to somebody through somebody else, that ended up changing their life. Like, that's real. Like I, can, I, like, I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God has called me and our family to Albuquerque because God has spoken that to other people to me. There's a lot of other things happening with that situation, but I know that that's true. I know that God has worked to restore and redeem and change and move people along through working through one person, two people, other people in other people's lives in this church. That's happened. It happens all the time. So, so what's going on? There's a lot going on. One of the things that's happening is that God is, Jesus is drawing near. Like when he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there. What's he talking about? He's talking about this. He's talking about when we're together in him, he's there. Doing what? Giving us courage. Like you need that. We need that. Like, I don't know if you've noticed, but like as the outside world and all of the, the culture and society and everything careens from crisis to crisis to crisis, like we need one another. That is one of the points that the Bible makes all over the place. You cannot be a believer. You cannot be a Christian by yourself. That is not the way it works. That's an American thing. It's not a biblical thing. How can you see Jesus in the midst of your life and what's going on, challenging circumstances, everything happening? How can you see him drawing near to you? Here. In the church. So if, if, if you're... If that's, if that's your story and like you're a partner here with us and you're committed to that, I want to suggest to you, I want to plead with you as we move forward, carry on. Carry on because we need one another. And when you show up, when you speak life into somebody else, when you're coming around Jesus and his word together, he's there. And he's not just there like, idly like twirling his thumbs. No, he's there giving courage. Okay. In those 71 sermons, I feel like I've preached at least 10 on community. So there's a mini one. Number two, a second idea to help us see Jesus in the midst of suffering, pain, trials, circumstances. Faith in the whole story. We need faith in the whole story. Interpreters for a long, long time, long, long time, have suggested that if we're going to understand really any text, but we'll just think about the Bible, if we're going to understand the Bible, individual parts of it, we also need to have an understanding of the whole. The whole influences the details. 
And so when you experience suffering and pain, frustration, sorrow, despair in your life, and you're wondering, okay, like, where is Jesus? I thought you said he draws near to me. What's going on? One of the ways that we can see him, that you can see him, is by remembering the whole story and having faith in the whole story. In other words, the God who redeems his people through sin and death is with you and for you in your suffering. He's with you and for you in your suffering. In fact, this is one of the things he does at a macro level. It happens at a micro level all the time where he leads us through sin, suffering, and death that we might come to new life on the other side of it that's more abundant than the previous, the previous season of life. So, so, so when we're entering into those contexts or into those seasons <clears throat> of suffering, having faith in the whole story rightly contextualizes how I can suffer in the midst of a, a particular season. You think about it this way. In Romans, in our series, when, when Paul says that God works all things out for the good of those who love him. Like there's a way of reading Romans 8 and thinking, that should go on a coffee mug and I'll just put it, in my, put it in my cabinet and then I'm never gonna think about that again. Don't do that. Rather, when he says all things, he means all things. Take, take like five seconds and think about what God must be like to, to work all things out for the good of those who love him according to his purposes. All things. To believe that promise, especially, listen, especially in the midst of suffering and pain, you've got to have faith in the whole story. Otherwise, you won't believe it. You see, this is where faith is required. When we start talking about the nitty-gritty down in the ditch, where real life is lived and where Jesus calls us out onto the edges of faith, faith is required. Not lip service, faith that can't see but trusts. Faith that doesn't know the outcome but is okay with that if God is there. It's sort of like at the end of Exodus when the people leave Mount Sinai, they're going across the desert again up toward the promised land and they say something like, Lord, we don't want to go if you're not going to go with us. But like, if you're not going to go with us, we're not going to go. That's on the front end of 40 years of wandering. That's on the front end of the conquest. It's on the front end of all kinds of insecurity. Don't know the future. But if the Lord is with us, we're going to go. That kind of faith. Jesus gives us the courage to actually have faith like that. Without him and without that courage, I mean, I'll speak for me. No way. But this leads me to the third point that I want you to see this evening. Jesus calls us out of the boat. He calls us out of the boat. Look with me at verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. 
And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. I am so glad that Peter is in the Bible. So glad that Peter's in the Bible. Through his story, through all these instances, we get to see over and over again, not what Peter's like. Like, I'm pretty good at knowing what Peter's like because I'm like that. I don't need the story to tell me. But, like, we see what Jesus is like in, these, in, in, in Peter's story. Here, we see what Jesus is like in the midst of failing faith. Peter saw Jesus, impulsively jumped out of the boat, and walked to him. In fact, <laughs> Jesus called out to him. But if you think about it, like from a pragmatic or temporal standpoint, how much sense does it make to jump out of a boat in the midst of the sea in the middle of a storm? Zero sense? Is that fair? It, it, it makes zero sense. But this is, what Peter, this is what Peter does for the simple fact that Jesus is not in the boat. You see, there's something else happening in the text. There's something else happening in the story that, that highlights to us that whatever, whatever we think about the boat, it's comfortable, there's a perceived sense of safety in the boat, it's convenient, like you don't have to swim or walk because the boat is buoyant. Whatever's going on, the point is that Jesus is not in the boat. Therefore, to get out of the boat and risk the waves is actually better, it's safer, it's where you're supposed to be, not the boat. Why? Because Jesus is not in the boat. He's out on the water. He's out on the edge. And what he does with Peter is call him out to join him. He could have stayed in the boat. But he, but he jumped out. Friends, I have a strong sense. I've, I've, I've shared this with a handful of people, a bunch of people. Like a really strong sense. And it certainly has to do with what, I'm, what our family is, is going through. But it's more than that. I know it's more than that. God is calling all of us out of the boat. All of us. Out of the boat, out into the wind, out onto the waves, out on the edge. Now that might not mean that you are moving to Albuquerque, but it might. We should talk. But it does mean that God is calling you out of a comfortable, safe, convenient, compartmentalized way of life. He's calling you away from that. He's calling you out on the edges with him. He's calling you to lay aside comfort and convenience. He's calling you to think about how you spend your money. He's calling you to think about taking positions or leadership places here in Mercyview. That's what he's doing. Just last week, we had a, a, a meeting, a leadership meeting here at Mercyview. And one of the things that I'm so excited about that I get to witness as, I, as, we, as we head out west is that there are people who are sensing this same call and are getting out of the boat here. God's at work. He's at work. And he's at work in mysterious ways, in ways we don't always understand. But listen, what we already, we already said, faith is mysterious. Life out on the edge is not comfortable. But you know what? There's life there. There's power there. You know why? Because Jesus is there. 
And so when we think about that together, part of, part of what I need you to think about is how do you get out of the boat? In what ways is he calling you out onto the waves? Because he is. He is. And so we've got to think through that together. You have to think through that. One of the, one of the right questions to ask of the text is, okay, like, why would I get out of the boat? It's, the right, it's one of the right questions to ask in response. It's like you're talking about risk. You're talking about danger. You're talking about not knowing how things are going to work out. You're talking about trust. Yes, all of those things. Why is that worth it? Why is it worth it? And there might be many answers to that question, but I want to suggest to you just one, and it's the best one, the best one. The answer is Jesus himself. The answer is Jesus himself. When you read the Gospels, I don't, I don't know how often you read the Gospel accounts. One of my favorite things about it, we actually did this in a men's Bible study like a year ago. Yeah, a year ago. If you focus on, as you're doing your reading, the way Jesus treats people, the way he interacts with all kinds of people, sinners, Pharisees, his disciples, children, whoever, you'll find a deep and intimate view of what he's like. And if the author of Hebrews is right, I mean, he is, he's the author of Hebrews, when he says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, when you see Jesus treating people in all of these ways in the gospel accounts, that's how he treats you. That's how he treats you. So what's going on here in our text in Matthew 14? Well, I don't know if you, if you forgot. Look at verse 30. But when he, Peter, saw the wind and the waves, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. How did Jesus treat Peter when his faith failed? You notice that? Have you ever thought about that? Usually we think about Peter walking on the water and we think like, yeah, he, he, didn't, he didn't quite have the faith to trust Jesus the whole time and then we sort of move on. No, no, don't move on. How did Jesus react to Peter's failing faith? Was he disappointed? Did he scold him? Did he let him drown? No. No, no. What does the text say? It says he immediately took him by the hand and held him close. That's what it says. In the midst of his failing faith. Listen, Peter did not display the kind of faith that Jesus would have been if Jesus was into merit, would have been proud of. Why? Because he went out on the wind and waves. He saw how scary it was. His faith failed and he sank. Don't miss, though, that in the midst of that failing faith, Jesus moved toward him, he reached down, he held him close. So what does that mean? 
What does it mean? It means that when you sin, when you fail, when you struggle, in the midst of that, Jesus moves toward you. He embraces you. He brings you close to him. He rescues you. He's not disappointed. He doesn't look at you with disappointed eyes. None of that. He moves toward you. He embraces you. He calls you his own. Listen, we have to fight the moralism germ all the time that suggests to us that, well, if my faith exceeds this certain merit and then Jesus is going to love me more and if I fail, then I'm going to go beat myself up for a couple of days and then when I feel better about myself, I'm going to move back toward him. No, none of that. What happened in the text? As he's sinking, the Lord Jesus moves towards him and pulls him close. He does the same for you. He does the same for you. So why is it worth it to jump jump out of the boat and walk on the waves? Because Jesus himself is gentle and kind and merciful and patient and loving and caring and he sees you from far off. He moves toward you with with a specific intent and even when your faith fails, his does not, filled with compassion, he embraces you and pulls you close. Don't miss how Jesus treats us out on the edges of faith where it is risky, where it is scary, where you might start sinking. All of that is better than being in the boat. Why? Because you're with Jesus. Because you're with Jesus. The disciples at the end of this account are changed. How do you know? Verse 33 says that they, 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 they get back to the boat and it says, truly, truly, you are the son of God. Earlier in the text, they think he's a ghost. Even Peter says, hey Lord, if it's you, if, now they know. Now they know. They're changed. Jesus demonstrated his power. Remember, he's walking on the water. It's pretty cool. But also he demonstrated his care and his love for his people, for Peter, by rescuing him and embracing him in the midst of his failing faith. You see, this is the kind of view of Jesus that has the power to stir our affection for him. It's his love for us creating and changing our hearts and and cultivating love for him. Like, you can't just, like, gin that up. I can't just, like, well, today I'm going to figure out the formula to make myself love God more. No, that's not a thing. Rather, it's seeing him for who he is and being changed by him. Only God turns hearts. And listen, I I could also share, like, in the last month or so, examples of this happening where God is at work in powerful ways that only he, can, only he gets the credit for that. Only him. It's happening. So friends, Jesus is calling you out of the boat, out onto the water, out in the midst of the waves, out on the edge. None of that makes sense. <laughs> from a temporal standpoint, none of it. 
But it all makes sense when we see Jesus clearly because being with him is where we need to be. It's where there's life and power and joy and flourishing. Apart from him, we have nothing. We have nothing. So friends, as our time comes to an end here in this, in this sermon, but then also thinking about our time here together, as it comes to an end, a couple of things here. Explore the beauty of Christ together. You have heard this story in Matthew 14 before. I know you have. But when we're able to see it from the lens of the beauty of Jesus, it has, it has power to start changing our hearts. All of the Bible is that way. All of it. Explore the beauty of Christ, who he is, what he's done. Ask the question, what must he be like? What must he be like? And, and spend time picking it apart, meditating on it. What must he be like? What must he be like to save Peter in the midst of his failing faith? What must he be like to save you in the midst of your failing faith? What must he be like to have known all about your failing faith and decide in eternity past to love you, to love you? To give himself up for you. What must he be like? And then finally, friends, get out of the boat. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that you are kind and merciful and gracious, loving. That you move toward us in our sin and in our struggle. You tell us in 1 Timothy that you are perfectly patient. God, be with us as we are weak and needy. Give us eyes to see how beautiful we are. Turn our hearts, change our hearts through your love that we would love you more. It's in Jesus' name I pray.